This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com fool. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You are listening to the Financials Edition, filmed today on Monday, July 11th, 2016. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on the phone is John Maxfield. Hello, John. Good morning, Gabby. We are also joined by phone by author Roger Lowenstein in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Gabby, it's a pleasure to be with you. So today we're going to be chatting with Mr. Lowenstein about his book, um, America's Bank, The Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve. It's this very handsome volume I have in my hands if you happen to be watching us via video. Um, So let's dive right in. We're super excited to have you here. We've talked about central banking before. Um, So let's get the the first question out of the way and let's keep it super simple. What is the Federal Reserve? What's its purpose? Why, why what, What is a central bank, basically? Why do we need it? Well, maybe the simplest way is to think of that uh, old uh, home-made uh, uh, home game of Monopoly that uh, everybody played as a kid, and maybe still. And every time you 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 know pass go, you get two hundred bucks, and the game seems to work because when you get two hundred bucks, it it gives uh, some players enough money to buy properties, and but uh, you know people do go bankrupt uh, before dinner time, and so the game ends. So there's uh, enough money to have a good game, but not too much that it goes on forever. <laughs> That's the purpose of a central bank, is to keep the monopoly game of our economy going so that there's enough money um, so that people can uh, invest and uh, create the companies and jobs and so on, and other people can get those jobs, but uh, not so much money uh, that the money becomes uh, meaningless or worthless, you know, something like a paper confetti. Uh, obviously, if you, you know, if you had thousands and thousands of, of dollars, then anybody could afford to park place and... Um, There'd be no tension in the game and, and no value of that paper. And uh, another way of thinking about the central bank is you, you want people uh, making decisions based on the economic value of things, such as um, uh, uh, buying products or uh, going to work or taking a vacation, and not based on whether the money today is going to be worth uh, more or less. So you want a stable currency. Uh, that's the job of the central bank, uh, Federal Reserve, and you want some stability, and that's also the job of uh, of uh, the central bank. In monopoly, it's okay if a bunch of players go bankrupt. In fact, that's the only way uh, the game ends. But we don't want that, or we don't want too much of that uh, uh, in the real world, because obviously that causes uh, a great deal of misfortune and pain. So all of those are responsibilities of the central bank. In this country, the Federal Reserve Bank. So, just to like kind of summarize that point, um, so it it helps set monetary policy, which is huge, um, and it's a lender of last resort, which we saw in the last financial crisis, and that's why um, all the players aren't going bankrupt in the real world, right? That's right. It does set monetary policy. Uh, another way of saying that is it sets the basic short-term interest rate that that determines, or, or largely helps determine the rates that banks charge and auto loans and mortgages and so on. And it's the lender, as you put it, uh, gracefully, of last resort. So when there's no other resort, uh, you know, when Bear Stearns was, was going broke, there was the Federal Reserve spending, spending that loan and, uh, and so on. Yeah, and now it's a little bit more active as well in that it helps uh, regulate banks. 
It's also the regulator of banks. That's that's been its job since it was created in 1913. Um, regulation uh, means everything from uh, what are the rules uh, that banks have to follow when they uh, give out mortgages, rules that uh, weren't followed very closely or very well before uh, the recent crisis, obviously, to um, uh, how much capital does a bank have to have when it goes out and makes a loan, uh, rules that are intended uh, hopefully not to suffocate the banks because they want them to make loans, but to keep them from being, uh, in a perfect world, uh, too liberal so that uh, they still have some money in the till to pay their own debts. So, so I, yeah, I, sorry. <laughs> so you guys have to understand that we have two people in the ether and one person in the studio, so we might accidentally talk over each other. But um, do you want to go ahead, Maxfield, with your question? Yeah, absolutely. So, Roger, the United States has a pretty colorful history with central banks, right? And, and your book in particular, which, by the way, this is the third book of yours that I've read, and I've, I've loved every one. The first book of yours that I read Thank was you. actually the first finance book that I read in my entire life. So maybe it's responsible for sending me on this track. It was When Genius Failed. I loved it. Um, but so this book in particular is about the, the kind of the third iteration of the, the central bank, or the, I guess they call it, we would call it the Federal Reserve, right, in the United States. Which spanned, and, you know, and it's all about kind of the creation of the Federal Reserve, which really spanned that time period between you know 1907 to 1913. What was it about that time period in particular that led lawmakers and policymakers uh, to kind of come back to this idea of the Federal Reserve and to really kind of what seems to, at least f since then, is to put a permanent one in place? Well, what led them to, John? Good question is the same reason why we're talking so much about the Federal Reserve and the banks today, because uh, the system failed back in, um, in 1907. There was a terrible uh, panic. There was a bank run. And when I say bank run back in 1907, I don't mean, uh, you know, a red blip on your computer screen. I mean, people ran down the block uh, to get money out of the bank before there was no money. And uh, banks did run out. They had to close. Uh, many of them closed. Many of them started uh, passing out a homemade script of monopoly money, if you will, just uh, something that business could use to meet their payrolls if the workers would accept it. So the system really froze. The system at that time was no system. It was uh, really a few uh, wealthy bankers, people such as J.P. Morgan, uh, a gentleman, if you will, who would extend loans to other banks when they were in trouble. And that was, you know, sort of a quaint. Uh, a way of doing things that might have worked, uh, you know, in the mid-19th century, but at the time of uh, 1907, when we were a complicated and, and a developed industrial power, um, we needed more than um, one uh, uh, earnest uh, gentleman uh, banker. And so people in that period began um, thinking and plotting and uh, disagreeing and so on about what kind of system we should have. And what also brings it back to the present day is there was huge opposition then, as there is now, to any sort of government involvement in the central bank, uh, in, the, in the financial system. Would it be too uh, biased towards Wall Street? Would it just be a tool for the big banks? Would it just bail out big banks? People said that 100 years ago, but not without some prescience. Uh, you allude to the fact that we'd had um, two iterations before that. Alexander Hamilton, the first Treasury Secretary, of course, started... Uh, the first bank of the United States. Thomas Jefferson didn't like it. Uh, you know, back then, the idea was uh, banks are going to be helping 
uh, of big financiers, there for people in the cities, people in farmlands don't need banks and so on, and they got rid of it. And it turned out not to be a good idea. And uh, so in the uh, uh, under uh, President Madison, we started the second bank in the United States, went through the whole thing again. Andrew Jackson, another sort of populist uh, leader, uh, felt that banks were just favoring the rich and that this uh, central bank was an ally of the money centers, uh, abolished it. And once again, we went into a depression. But we've, we have in this country um, sort of a seesaw uh, of our politics back and forth between um, wanting some force for stability uh, based in the government to control and regulate the money flow and, and give us a, a centralized banking reserve so that when one area of the country needs extra resources, we can be that uh, lender of last resort that Gavi pointed out. And on the other hand, this other tension, this real fear, you know, particularly in, out in the hinterlands and in farmlands, away from the big city, that if you give a central bank all that power, they're not going to be acting um, uh, with a common man or woman in mind. And, and that's really been a tension with the tension in 1907, the period I wrote about. And obviously, if you listen to uh, Bernie Sanders today or Donald Trump, it's very much a tension in our system today. See, that's really interesting. I was talking to my friend last night, and I asked him to guess when he thought the Federal Reserve in its current form had been created, and he said post-Civil War. Um, and this really gets to an interesting point in your book, which is that central banking um, is something that has existed in other countries for centuries, right? So, like, uh, the Riksbank, which is the central bank of Sweden, was founded in 1668, and the Bank of England was founded in 1694. This, like, pressure against centralization is something that's been very central to the United States and has been pushing against federal reserves ever since. That's right, Gabi. You're right up on your history with the examples of Sweden and England, and same is true for other countries in Europe. You know, we have had this um, uh, political um, fear of centralization, and I said in the book and think that it really goes back to our history as a people, after all, uh, whose formative political experience was rebellion against uh, a central monarch, King George III. That that's our founding, uh, you know, political story, right? That's that's our political Thanksgiving, and even even though that was so many years ago, if you think about the way the country developed, always pushing west, I think the people on the frontier uh, always tended to look back uh, on Washington, New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, and so on. Some of the way the early colonists looked on on the British king uh, that that this uh, centralized power, these East Coast elites, uh, weren't quite to be trusted. And, and, uh, you know, they wanted, they didn't want to give up uh, too much power themselves. And you see this is a a very strong movement today, a Tea Party wing of the Republican Party. You saw it early in the country's history and things like the Shays Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, where settlers in, you know, Western Pennsylvania and Western Virginia, which were within the, you know, that was out West back then, uh, didn't want to pay taxes to Washington. Um, you know, in other countries, uh, national health care is just sort of something you do. People you don't really think about it much. In this country, obviously, it's a very unsettled, uh, difficult issue for the United States. Uh, you know, other countries have one system of corporation rules. We have 50, one in every, every state. <laughs> so when... You know, it's not a coincidence, by the way, that the idea for the central bank in the United States really began with the Europeans. One of the heroes of the book, Paul Warburg, who came to this country, a German, emigrated here, 
and he was a banker, couldn't believe that we didn't have a central bank. Um, in his um, analogy, it was like a town without a, a, a water reservoir, everybody with a little well in their backyard. But that obviously wouldn't do it if you had, uh, you know, say, a, a three-alarm fire. There are things, there are reasons why you need to unify the banking reserves and marshal them into a, a more effective resource. But what other countries take for granted, uh, there's a, a political segment here that has always cast a very wary eye. That's why, for instance, other countries have one central bank, and we have, well, we have a central banking apparatus in Washington. We really have 12, right? We have a, a bank in Philadelphia and one in Richmond and you know, one in St. Louis and, and those 12 banks around the country. And that, the idea of that was to mimic the uh, federal organization of the government itself. So I just need to take a brief break. Uh, listeners, I want you to know that I have never gotten a mortgage, but it sounds hard. Like, really hard. Luckily, Rocket Mortgage has taken all the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Everything is completely online, and with the touch of a button, you can share your financial statements, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Quicken Loans is an equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Thanks again to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for supporting our podcast. So, thanks for your patience. Turning back to our topic, uh, we've talked about kind of like the who, what, where, when, and why. Um, so, let's kind of talk a little bit about the Fed's short-term success, like um, in terms of history. So, in theory, the Fed was supposed to have stopped panics and crashes, but the Great Depression still happened. Can you give any insight on why? Yeah, I mean, the Great Depression is a huge black mark, obviously, in the Federal Reserve. Uh, and to some extent, it's a black mark on uh, the founding organization of the Federal Reserve. I think it goes back to the point I just mentioned, that um, the founders were uh, very aware that the country uh, was pretty much allergic to the idea of a, a European-style, fully centralized uh, bank. In fact, Carter Glass, and listeners may know him better as uh, one of the authors of the Glass-Steagall Act, that came later, but in any case, Carter Glass, then a congressman from, from Virginia, um, authored the legislation, uh, commonly known as the father of the Federal Reserve. He himself was um, completely opposed to any sort of uh, centralization. And originally, he proposed to President Wilson uh, a draft of the bill with 20 different um, uh, reserve centers around the country. This is nearly one for every two states, and no. Nobody in Washington at all, no Federal Reserve system in Washington. So he wanted a completely um, decentralized system. Uh, others uh, leaned on Wilson, and there was a, this compromise I alluded to where we have this hub-and-spoke system of 12 uh, banks around the country and a, a governing body in Washington. But the founders left it, to get to your question about the Depression, uh, somewhat vague about where the power and responsibility would lie. Would it lie with the individual reserve banks? Would it lie in New York, which people knew would be the most um, powerful bank? Would it lie in Washington with the uh, Federal Reserve System or perhaps with the Treasury? Uh, it was unclear, and they thought about this. There were various times in the first 15 years of the Fed where one bank, for instance, would want to raise interest rates, where the others in the system were lowering them, or, or vice versa. Uh, you know, we wouldn't have this today, but, but there's quite a disagreement about the extent to which these banks um, – were uh, sort of uh, you know, free to go their own way. When the Depression hit, there was no consensus about 
who was running monetary policy, uh, who had the responsibility for um, uh, marshalling and executing an effective response to the Depression. Was it the New York Federal Reserve Bank? Was it Washington? Was it the president? And as a result, we got a sort of series of halfway policies. Uh, some banks were more hawkish, some were more dovish. The Federal Reserve System was, uh, meaning the, the board in Washington, was uh, fairly weak, uh, very much uh, quite contrast to recently when you know we had this terrible uh, economic crash in 2008. And no matter what you think about uh, Bernanke's response, whether you like it, whether you don't like it, there's no doubt about who was in charge. There's no doubt that, and there was no doubt among any of the various members of the Federal Reserve System that Bernanke was in charge. He came up with a plan. He executed a plan. Again, whether you like it or not, um, it was uh, a very active uh, a plan. He, it was not a weak response. And we didn't have this in the Great Depression. And I, I think that's one reason why uh, it lingered uh, so long. Um, you know, these things are uh, also as much uh, art as science. Um, one of uh, Bernanke and after him, Janet Yellen's, I think, um, uh, key points that they've relied on, is we don't want to take the monetary uh, medicine away too soon. So uh, there's been a lot of criticism that uh, rates have stayed too low for too long, but um, Bernanke and Yellen after him have, have been quite vehement in saying, we want to make sure the patient's really healthy. Well, the reason they're saying that is because in the 1930s, the Federal Reserve didn't. Uh, after the economy had done a great deal of recovering in 1937, the Fed said, okay, uh, you, you're, Mr. Economy, you're fine. We're taking the medicine away. And we went back into a very severe depression. So, uh, you know, we've learned from that. And why hadn't we then? Well, uh, people aren't perfect. Uh, central bankers aren't perfect. Uh, they didn't have the experience then, and uh, they made a mistake. Yeah, I think that something that was really interesting in your book, too, was that it, it appears that the original authors of the um, legislation uh, Nelson Aldrich, well, I guess the Aldrich Bill, which would later um, inform the Federal Reserve Act, Correct. they, they kind of left it vague on purpose because they wanted the bill to pass, and there was such a sentiment against central banking that they they wanted to make it kind of vague so people wouldn't just react from their gut as opposed to actually thinking about it. That's right. I mean, it, it's hard to convey, hopefully it's conveyed in the book, um, how adamant people were against a central bank, how these words you know, just the words themselves uh, conveyed or set off fear. A lot of the debate in Congress was about whether or not the plan for the Federal Reserve Act was a quote central bank or not. That this was, you know, it was, it was almost like a four-letter word or a four-letter phrase. Um, uh, a, a Carter Glass, a Representative Glass, would carry around in his pocket uh, a copy of the Democratic uh, platform of 1912. The bill was passed in 1913, and anytime anybody said. Um, you know, we ought to do such and such in the bill. If it entailed some centralization, he would pull out this copy of the platform and show them where the Democratic platform, the ruling party that uh, prescribed a central bank. And passage of the bill really involved um, this uh, intricate dance, of really quite a, a subterfuge, or a bit of play acting to pretend that what they were constructing wasn't a central bank. Uh, you know, it, it was, but, but, you know, we see this today uh, where certain things just become forbidden in the political culture. Back then, the idea of a central bank uh, was one of those things so that 
even as they were doing it, they had to pretend that, that they weren't doing it. So I think uh, Maxfield actually has a question for you about um, the Fed and regulating banks, correct? Yeah, well, actually, let me let me kind of take the question in a different direction, Roger. So, you know, when you look back, you have the first uh, uh, central bank in the United States, you have the second central bank in the United States, now we have this third one, right? And if, if you really look over the history of the Federal Reserve absent the Great Depression when it was still trying to feel its way out and kind of figure out the power allocation between its branches, you know, and, and its Central Monetary Commission in Washington, D.C., it really, it, it augured in a period uh, in fact, in banking, they call it the great moderation. So it's one of right. It's one of the 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 least volatile periods in the history of banking in the United States, which is quite you know much more volatile actually than much many other countries. But then you have the the financial crisis of two thousand and eight. That's kind of the one mark on its record since then. But it actually it seems to have averted from from you know a, a recession turning into a depression, which is what we had in the 1930s. So for somebody like you who you know, has studied the history of the Federal Reserve and other uh, central banks and kind of looked at this whole issue, when you look at the Federal Reserve's performance since its founding, kind of how would you grade that? And then the second part of that is, do, is there, you know, you kind of alluded this to this in your book, but you never really kind of you know teased it out further. Do you, is there any fear or any concern or any legitimacy to arguments that the Federal Reserve could go the same way as uh, the first two central banks yeah. in the United States? Yeah. Well, um, first, um, uh, I'll just point out one other episode of uh, of failure, and that's the, the Great Inflation of the 1970s. So, you know, really, the Fed had three. I'd say significant failures. The, the, the Great Depression, uh, you know, long period of stability. Then, and we had this uh, pretty terrible inflation. Uh, not going to that in the book. It's a different year in history. But President Nixon leaned on his uh, uh, former advisor and then Fed Chief Arthur Burns to open the spigot all the way. You know, Nixon didn't want to risk losing his, the election. You know, he did a lot of foolish things to be re-elected, as people who know the Watergate history will know. But one of them was Leon's Federal Reserve chief. And Burns, unfortunately, uh, went along with it. And we had this terrible inflation in the 70s. And um, then, as you said, John, we had um, you know, a long period referred to as a great moderation, uh, followed by the crash. I, I think one of those begat the other. When you get a long period of stability, what happens? Uh, you know, each... Each month, each year that conditions are stable, people feel a little bit more confident. They take a little bit more risk. And, and you just sort of picture someone walking further and further out on a ledge. And uh, when is he going to stop walking out on a ledge? When he realizes that he's over thin air. And, um, you know, that's what happened. There was a, I, I think the regulators, not just the Federal Reserve, but the Federal Reserve and others, got too comfortable with the idea, idea of deregulation. They permitted. Um, all sorts of mortgages to be written that should not have been written. Um, we can go into that another time. So based on those three episodes, uh, I'm going to give the Federal Reserve a B, uh, you know, not a B plus uh, in its first uh, 100 years. You know, and I give it a stronger grade for its uh, actions in helping the country to recover from the crisis, and as you say, preventing um, a depression. But but uh, that overall grade uh, for, for me would be uh, would be a B. Now I'm I'm forgetting. Was there another aspect to your question? We cover that one. 
just whether or not you you think that it is like is there a legitimate oh, fear that the federal reserve could go now. in the same direction yes, I, as I think it is one of the other I'm, two central banks yes as i go around uh you're giving talks in this book and so on uh live audiences uh there's a tremendous amount of hostility to the federal reserve uh there's a temptation to think um uh, these bankers, they're all in it together. Uh, they're just trying to help out other bankers. Um, people seem to blame the Fed for, you know, all sorts of things. Central Bank is a powerful, uh, you know, institution. It, um, it's not responsible for, uh, forming new country, uh, companies, uh, hiring new workers. You know, much of what, ha- most of what happens in the economy, it, it's important, but it's not omnipotent. Uh, people tend to blame it, I think, for, just about everything when things go badly or we get into slow uh, periods. And there's a great deal of frustration now. There's a willingness, I think, to experiment or indulge um, all sorts of extremes. Should we go back to the gold standard? Should we have some sort of electronic money, you know, Bitcoin, even though the value of that is uh, you know, way more uh, unstable than, uh, than the value of the dollar? Fed has done a pretty good job at... Um, maintaining a stable value of the dollar. People have predicted that the value of the dollar would crash because of the Fed's emergency measures. In fact, it's only strengthened since the crisis. And, you know, we look pretty good compared to certainly the ECB in Europe and um, many, really most of the other uh, major currency areas of the world. But I think the Fed has um, a public image problem and probably a crisis of legitimacy um, to the greatest amount in its in its since its founding. Yeah, it's really ghosts of debates past. It's incredible reading your book that it's it's a lot of the same arguments that were back then we're still having now. Um, so I do have a one one last wrap up question. Um, and this kind of has to do with your book. We actually have a few listeners who I know are aspiring writers. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, if there's one thing you could tell new writers, what would it be? Well, this is my first history, so, um, you know, in a sense, I was a new writer on this book. I've you know, written a bunch of uh, uh, nonfiction books about recent uh, financial dramas. This is the first one that went back to a, uh, you know, financial crash of 1907, and presidents, you know, were no longer alive, like Woodrow Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt and so on. They're fine characters, but you can't talk to them anymore. <laughs> and it, it turns out that, you know, if you have the reporting instincts and willingness to work hard and dig through and read the letters, sit down at the library and, you know, turn off that cell phone and everything. It's just as exciting and you can learn just as much uh, and you can, you know, paint just as vivid a picture of a period gone by, uh, in some cases even more so, because you have to fill in some of the dots for yourself since those people aren't there talking to you. And it's, it's really, for me, uh, an excitement, as exciting as anything I've ever done to try to make um, this era for 100 years ago uh, come alive. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd urge your listeners to to go at it, whatever whatever interests them, whether it's a current period or uh, something in the past. Thank you so much. That was a really lovely answer and a really excellent interview. Um, for our listeners, just in case you missed it the first time, the book is called America's Bank, The Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve, and it is by Roger Lowenstein. Thank you again so much for joining us, Mr. Lowenstein. Uh, Gabby and John, it was great to be on the show. Thank you. Um, thank you very much to John, too, for joining us. Uh, as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. 
Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus if you have a suggestion for um, who we should interview next. Thank you very much to Anne Henry, uh, today's totally awesome producer, and thank you to everyone for joining us. Hope everyone has a great week.